I'd be good if you are a person with a Bible or a phone with the Word of God on, in, in it, on it, whatever the correct word is there. Uh, please uh, feel free to have that open. We're going to be looking particularly at verses uh, 12 to 18 of this passage. Um, but let us continue in prayer before we go any further. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who is with us always, that guides and teaches us in many ways, and especially now through your word, Lord. We pray that you will help us to know and understand your will for us, uh, that it will be clear what this passage means, and that we will know what to do going forward. We pray that you will guide the words that are spoken, that they are words that bring glory to your name and honour to your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Uh, nothing can convince a 17-year-old boy to change their ways than when a treasured teacher comes to them and informs them that they smell and need to do something about it. When I was uh, in high school, I had this very conversation with one of my favourite teachers, and I think he knew he was one of my favourites, so he knew he was one of the few people that he could say that to and I wouldn't hold it against him. Uh, but it was, a, it was a confronting conversation. I mean, I was a 17-year-old boy, and all 17-year-old boys smell, but it was an interesting discussion. Uh, and the reason I'm sharing it is because it was a discussion that changed the way that I lived. In sharing this information with me, and in me trusting and believing it, I went out and I did things differently. I was, I was bathing regularly, I wasn't like a, you know. Anyway, uh, but it was, you know, I started wearing deodorant, I was mindful of all sorts of different things. Uh, and as I share this with you now, I'm super self-conscious because it's really humid tonight and I am sweating like crazy, so I'm definitely worried about how I'm gonna smell later on. But news, when we learn things about ourselves and about the world and about things in this life, it tends to change the way that we both see and behave in it. Uh, many of you have or will get married at some point, uh, and at that moment you will begin to see yourself less as an individual and more as a person joined with another, a husband or a wife. Uh, many of you have, on uh, a more serious note, received diagnoses that have changed the way that you live. I remember when my father was informed of the troubles of his heart, he's fine by the way, but it changed the way that he lived, it changed what he ate, uh, his life became more active. Uh, some of you maybe have received uh, or have family who've received terminal diagnosis and seen the way that that information changes their behavior and the way that they look at things. When we learn things, when we understand the truth in this world, it changes the way that we live in it. And really that's what this whole passage is about. It's about looking to the reality of who Jesus is and who we are on this earth in relation to him as his people and how that should affect the way that we live. We start at verse 12 in which Paul says to the Philippians, he says, therefore, my dear friends, as you always have obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you and will act in order to fulfill his good purposes. Uh, many of you who are perhaps hold to a reformed theological position uh, hear those lines and perhaps feel a bit troubled. Work out your salvation. What on earth does Paul mean when he implies that? Uh, if you've paid attention in your readings throughout scripture, you'd notice that Paul makes a big deal about salvation is only made or brought or through Jesus Christ and in faith. And yet the phrasing here is confusing. It almost sounds as if Paul is saying, all right, you've got to, guys have got to be scared and you've got to go home and figure out how you're going to get saved. Uh, but it's not actually like that. The, the, the wording and the phrasing here, it's not an instruction on what you should do. It's an ethical reality of how you should live. To work out your salvation in the context of what Paul is saying here 
is to understand what it means to be saved and live appropriately as someone who is saved. Uh, and the evidence of that comes in the following verses when it says, for it is God who works in you. Paul, you know, he understands straight away that that phrasing might be a little confusing, so he clarifies it. It is God that works in you and does the work. To work out your salvation here is to understand what it means to be a saved person and to live a life that reflects that. And then he clarifies that even more with saying, with fear and trembling. And if we understand the ethical implications of uh, working out your salvation, it helps us understand a bit more about what Paul means when he says fear and trembling. Uh, fear in scripture is often used in association with God. Uh, if you read through the Psalms and other uh, parts of the Old Testament, God is often described as one in which his people fear him. But it's not a fear in which the people fear being squashed like an ant or condemned for no reason by an irrational, fierce force, but is a fear that acknowledges the true reality of who God is. Uh, one of the difficulties we find as we read through the Bible is that we have these headings and Bible verses, and they're very, and I don't want to discourage you from using them, very helpful in understanding key thoughts in passages uh, and where things are. But sometimes subconsciously, we in un, unintentionally start to separate scripture from itself and create gaps, like we're reading essentially small little proverbs that are unrelated when it's actually one big thing. And the reason I'm, I'm sharing this is because this whole point is actually tying back to what Paul started in 1 Philippians chapter, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, live as citizens of the gospel, united in one spirit. Paul is actually wanting his people to understand now what it looks like to live as citizens. And the fear and trembling is in relation to what we read just now from Philippians chapter 2 together and what Charles preached on last week, this idea of Jesus Christ not only humbled himself and died for us, but he now sits in glory on the throne. That is the God that we worship. When I was uh, not long out of high school, uh, a lot of people were really into the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts. Does anyone remember those t-shirts? No, it's how old I am. It's, the, it's the, my generation at the 10 o'clock who get this. Uh, there were these shirts that every morning said, Jesus is my homeboy, and they had the purest of intentions behind it. I believe they were, people were trying to communicate to the world that they have a God who is, they have a deep friendship with, that knows them. Uh, but I remember talking to a minister about it years ago, and he, he made the point to me that while it's true we have a deep God who is a friend, the shirts perhaps betray the, the true reality of the relationship we have in that he is our king, that he is worthy of all respect. And the, the terminology of homeboy perhaps doesn't perhaps show the reverence to God that he deserves. At the beginning of Philippians chapter 12, too, we've seen the glory of Jesus, both in his humility and now in the authority that he holds on the throne. And we look now in fear and trembling, not because we're afraid he will take away what he has done, but because he is all-powerful and all-knowing. One of my favorite lines uh, in the communion service is the, is the prayer of humble access. Uh, we don't often say it at six, but it's a wonderful prayer. If you ever get a chance to find a prayer book, have a look at it. And it there's a line and it says, I am not even worthy to eat the crumbs off your table. That is the nature of our relationship with God, that none of us could claim that anything we have done makes us worthy to even go near God. 
And yet we now have an opportunity to work out our salvation, to know what it means to be saved, knowing and understanding that relationship fully. But what does that mean to work out our salvation? What does Paul actually want the Philippians to do here? And I actually think it's found at the very start of this reading. It says, as you always have obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Paul makes it clear to the Philippians that to work out their salvation with fear and trembling is to obey their creator, is to obey their savior. Obedience in scripture is a reflection of the saved reality that one has in Jesus. Uh, This was more uh, than ever relevant to the Philippians. They lived in a world that was pushing and, and pushing them to worship other gods and deny Jesus. On the one hand, they had the Romans who accused them of being disloyal to the emperor. And on the other hand, they had the Macedonians who accused them of bringing curses upon their towns because they refused to worship their gods. So the Philippians knew what it meant to obey God and reject the worship of the world around them. To live obedient lives is to live a life that reflects a true understanding of the universe. Obedience to God is not something that will ever bring you salvation. That Jesus, as we've read last week, has already done that. But obedience reflects an understanding of the true reality of what it means to be saved. That you fear and tremble before a God who controls this universe and yet has shown you mercy. It is a reality of who you are. It's a reflection of the known truth of Jesus. Obedience is not a happy word to hear most of the time, ever, pretty much. And I think there's a few reasons that. I think one reason is that people have used obedience as a way to justify either doing or commanding others to do awful things. Obedience has been used in marriages to to permit abuse and other things. But at the same time, I also think that sometimes our world objects to the word obedience because our sinful hearts wants to be the one that makes the decisions for everything that we do. Uh, Particularly in the West, we are living in a more and more individualistic culture in which we uh, have more and more autonomy to make more and more decisions on our own and do what we will. And not necessarily that is not a bad thing. But when we hear the word obedience, it it can in our hearts and our minds perhaps restrict this self-attained identity that we want to hold on to restrict who we are. And yet we are not calling, God is not calling us to be obedient to an abusive husband, to an authoritative church leader who demands things from you. He's calling us to be obedient to a savior who has died for you. Your obedience isn't to me, but it's to Jesus. And living a life that reflects that. Paul continues in, from verse 14. He says, Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without faults in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. This do everything is linked back to this idea of working out our salvation. To work out your salvation is to be in obedience. And to be obedient is to do it without grumbling or arguing. And I want you to remember, we're, we're looking back to Philippians 1, 27, 
to live as citizens of God, united by the Spirit. This is a communal instruction to a community to be obedient to God together, united together, working out your salvation together without grumbling or without arguing. And it's really important to understand because often when Paul gives us specific uh, instructions as an individual, he follows it up with what that actually means. And yet here, his instructions remain broad and communal because he's talking to the Philippians as a community based on the idea of unity. He's still talking to us. He hasn't moved on from the idea of unity that he started in chapter 1. The people of God are to work out their salvation united as one, without grumbling or arguing. And the word grumbling uh, links us back particularly, I mean, you might think old man, you know, Ian, uh, coming up and, and grumbling. You, you said it, not me. Um, but it actually, Paul here is actually linking us back to the Old Testament. The word draws us back to the Israelites in the desert. God had drawn them out of Egypt, saved them from slavery, and because they did not like the current circumstances where they were wholly dependent on God, they actually began to rebel against God and against Moses. And they even asked to return to slavery. This is the kind of grumbling that Paul wants us to think about. And it's important because then he clarifies it with this idea of arguing. Uh, and another way to think of it is like engaging in petty and pointless squarreling. Quarreling, sorry, not squarreling. That's a cool word there. Quarreling. Paul is trying to address the nature of humanity when we're in groups in that we often do engage, engage and get angry and bitter about the most pointless things in church. And I'm going to clarify later on, there's a difference between having a disagreement in church and not, not necessarily liking something in church, but engaging in, and engaging in a petty squirrel, quarrel. <laughs> I'm just going to go with squirrel. It, the word here, the, particularly the big emphasis here is this idea of division that comes with this attitude, this anger and frustration that leads to a desire to separate others. And you see it in human beings. We love, as human beings, to grumble and be angry. In fact, research has shown that anger is an addictive personality trait. And what I mean by that, and I, I don't want to make anyone feel bad, but we're often told, as, particularly as men, that if we're angry, we should go punch a punching bag. But what research has shown is that all that does is make you more aggressive. Because uh, it sounds weird, but engaging in physical violent activities when you're angry increases, actually releases pleasure into your brain, and your brain associates that more with anger and violence. But not even beyond that, just the willingness to get angry quickly is an addictive quality. It releases chemicals into our brain that actually makes us want to get angry more. It's why the Bible makes such a big deal about pursuing peace and humbling your anger because it knows that the natural state of humanity is to be drawn quickly to anger. And if you disagree, take a friend and get them to drive you around Newtown for an hour and see how they feel at the end of that hour. They'll be angry and mad because everyone drives like crazy. Anyway. Almost every organization in this world, any of you who have ever worked with human beings will know that there is anger, there is division, there is frustration amongst communities of people. Uh, one of my first things uh, doing uh, when I did ministry back when I was youth, uh, I did scripture in the high schools. Uh, and the only, time, only working environment I ever worked in was as a cleaner. And I didn't talk to any of the staff because I was at, we would clean and then we'd go home. We didn't really have any time together. 
Um, so when I got my first job at a church, I worked in a staff team and it was a very positive environment. I remember going to the high school scripture classrooms and sitting in the staff room at lunchtime and I was unprepared for the level of bitterness and anger that existed in this team. And they weren't angry. I thought they'd be angry at the kids because, you know, teenagers are teenagers, but they were, they were angry at each other. They were bitter towards other staff members, to their bosses. And I'm sure many of you who've ever worked anywhere are saying to me, dirt him, that's, that's, that's life in an office. And I don't mean that to be, let's, let's crit- criticize the world and, and reality, but to point out that when Paul calls us to be united without grumbling or arguing, he's actually calling us to be different to the world. A church united stands out. A church in which we do not grumble and allow ourselves to be divided as Paul described, is a light unto the world. He says to it, shine like stars in the sky. Uh, and it's a beautiful, beautiful notion that, that almost speaks for itself, but it also actually draws us back to Daniel chapter 12, in which Daniel sees the completion of God's kingdom and that God's people shine like stars in the sky. So what it actually is saying here in this passage is that if you do everything without grumbling and arguing and are united, then the church will reflect to the world the future reality of God's kingdom. Not just how nice it is to be a believer now, but the glory and wonder that is to come in the kingdom of God. We are to work out our salvation together through obedience to Christ without allowing ourselves to submit to grumbling and arguing. Paul then continues, however, and he, he makes this point that almost seems a bit at odds with everything, or well, not at odds, but perhaps a bit different, like he's changing the subject. But he says, from verse 16, halfway through, he says, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. It's this interesting moment where Paul actually addresses, I guess, the pride that he feels in his work. Uh, I can boast. Uh, And it's not not a pride in the efforts that he's put in. Paul is not saying, and I can boast about how good I preached and how good my persuasive words were in the temple. No, his boasting is in Jesus. His boasting is in the work that Jesus has done in the Philippians. That he sees them working out their faith together in obedience to God, in reverence to Jesus, without grumbling, without arguing, and he knows that Christ has worked and done what others could not in this world. But Paul also then addresses a sadder reality, although he doesn't see it as a sad reality, but a real reality of what is to come. He described himself as being poured out like a drink offering. And he uses this Old Testament language of the blood sacrifice made for others. And really what Paul is saying is that his work that he has done, the work that he now boasts in Christ, is leading him to his death. Uh, I do not know if Paul knows that he's going to die. The language doesn't seem to imply that he's absolutely certain, but I think he also knows there's a very real possibility as he sits in prison that what comes next is his death. But he doesn't describe it uh, with self-pity or even mourning, but describes it as a sacrifice of, of love for the work of the gospel. 
And then he even says that you too will share in this same sacrifice. And really what Paul is hinting at here, and he's not giving a specific instruction, but he's explaining to the Philippians the reality that we are not just united in our, in our working out our obedience, we are also united in the suffering that God's people will experience daily, that God's people will see. All of God's people share in the same glory, that is the forgiveness of Jesus Christ being counted as God's children, and all of us will share in the suffering persecution. Throughout the first half of chapter 2, Paul has encouraged his people to be like Jesus, pouring out his body as a sacrifice. Jesus' catch cry in the Gospels was, take up your cross and follow me. And rather than sitting here and going, oh, that's, that's a real bummer, Paul goes, this is wonderful because to suffer, to face persecution for your faith is to be counted as right and one of God's people. If your obedience to God makes you a target in your workplace, in the world that you live in, then you should rejoice because you've been found worthy enough to be counted among God's people. In this suffering, we see unity still. We see togetherness. It is not a suffering in which Paul suffers alone, but suffers for others in wonder, seeing their faith grow. And the same goes for us as God's people. Our our battle, our struggles, should not be in, but should be out. The world wants us to argue and grumble and quarrel, quarrel, It's a good way to lighten the mood of it, isn't it? The world wants us to be divided because when we are divided, we are vulnerable, we are weak, and we, we, how, how can we work out our salvation when we're too busy fighting with one another? And it's not about going out, it's not about be, becoming submissive, yes, men and women, to whatever is set up the front or to you in person. You are more than welcome and invited. Unity in the spirit does not mean that you dis, can't disagree with how things should be done in the church. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't be upset if something hurtful is said from the pulpit. It doesn't mean that you should sit there and say nothing when you see perhaps the church heading in a direction that you find uncomfortable. But what it does mean is that we avoid those behaviors that that draw us into petty uh, frustrations in our life, going home and just complaining and complaining about the things that the minister said or did or the things that that person did, or how frustrating it was to have a conversation with that person, and then sharing it with another church member the next day, allowing ourselves to get angry. I mean, the biggest division you ever see in church is how loud the music should be. And I, I, don't, I think some of you are within your eyes to say the music is too loud. That's fine. But I think there are others who come to me and tell me the music is too loud, and then you go and tell five other people that the music is too loud and how awful it is that the service does this. And I want to apologize at the same time because some of you have come forward in, par- in the past and expressed real concerns and we perhaps have not necessarily addressed them in the best way. We are human and we will make mistakes. But to allow ourselves to be divided by things that aren't about the gospel seems foolish when you think about the fact that that's what the world wants us to be like. It wants us to be like them. It wants a staff room full of people that complain. 
To live a life in Philippians 2 is to live a life that understands the real truth of your existence. That you are saved by the cross of a king who sits in glory and honor. And that you now have an opportunity to work out your salvation, to know what that means, to live a life that reflects that in reverence to Christ, in obedience to Christ, united with his people for the growth of his gospel and his kingdom. That is our mission and our purpose. Let me finish in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who has brought us out of death, out of our sin and out of our, our, our slavery to this earth. That you have freed us and brought us into your family. Father, we pray that you will help us to acknowledge the true wonder of Christ on his throne, to live a life that reflects that, a life that brings honor to him, that reverence to him, and obedience to him. That we be united and not grumble, but instead joyful in our suffering for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.